When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I, I get it. If people don't want to read about like the adult diapers that you wear after you have a baby, like that's totally fine. But let's not pretend that those can't be just as literary as like, I don't know, you know, Philip Roth's erection. <laughs> I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And, and I'm, I'm a writer, writer but... <laughs> Welcome to I'm a Writer But. Today we have Julia Fine, who is the author of The Upstairs House and What Should Be Wild, which was shortlisted for the Bram Stoker Superior First Novel Award and the Chicago Review of Books Award. She teaches writing in Chicago, where she lives with her husband and children. Welcome, Julia. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. I loved The Upstairs House so much, and I can't wait to talk about it. What are you going to read to us? Um, I'm going to read from The Upstairs House because... In my brain, it's going to be book promotion season for the rest of my life. So. As it should be. <laughs> no, I As listened to uh, Chris Malcolm Beck last week. Mm-hmm. Say, he was like, oh, I've got something brand new that I've never read before. It's like, oh, I'm going to read the same thing I read every time I read. <laughs> 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 but I've never gotten to hear you read from it. So that's a treat. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm going to read from, it's um, the second chapter, but there really is not much set up um, except that the, the baby is Clara, the husband is Ben, um, and Solly is the dog. Okay. Before the baby was my body getting ready for the baby, a preparation both physical, swollen ankles, leg cramps, nausea, and mental. I worried about everything. What if the fumes from the carpet cleaner in the condo next door came through the vents in our bathroom and poisoned our daughter? What if she was born with some new genetic disorder that they couldn't catch with prenatal tests? What if the dog attacked the baby, hated the baby, and we had to get rid of the dog? What if the dog attacked the baby while we weren't looking, and we had to have the dog put down, and then the neighbors got mad because they all loved Solly, and they tried to kick us out of the condo association for being bad parents and bad dog parents, and who would want to live next door to those? They would understand, said Ben, when at eight months pregnant, I played out this scenario. In the incredibly unlikely event that our dog turns vicious and attacks our newborn, I'm sure that everyone will understand why we had to get rid of her. Solly was laid out on the floor next to the couch and he reached down to scratch between her ears, but I don't wanna get rid of Solly. Then good thing we don't have to. I feel like you're not taking me seriously. I feel like you're not being serious. 
My face fell, then softened. Everyone has babies, he said, which wasn't true. People have babies all the time. We're in one of the best cities in the world and we have the best doctors. There's nothing to worry about. None of this was true. If we had stayed in New York or moved to Paris, maybe then at least some of it would be true. But after 15 years away, we'd moved back to Chicago. 40 minutes from Ben's parents, 25 from mine. What are you so scared of? I don't know. If I let myself linger, and I tried very hard not to, I did know. What scared me was the being known, the knowing. This baby would forever be bound to me. How would I hide myself from a part of myself? I knew my own mother in ways that I hoped my daughter would never know me. I pitied my own mother and never wanted to be pitied. I'd seen my mother's C-section scars and her sweat stains, knew the smell that she left in the bathroom. I'd heard her ugly laugh and seen her swear at wait staff and watched her cry in the dark at our old kitchen table after spilling her fourth glass of wine. Motherhood was not a role I'd envied. It was not a job I wanted. But I didn't not want it either. I didn't actively push it away. We hadn't been trying for a baby. I could have hidden the news from Ben and handled everything discreetly, but I didn't. There was a piece of myself I wanted to cultivate, a version of myself I wanted to be. I could pack sack lunches and bring Gatorade to soccer practice, make trifold science fair projects and polish tiny toenails. I could set aside the dissertation that had started to bore me. Best of all, I barely had to do anything. I could choose without actively choosing. Here was my body letting us know that we could have this thing, this future, if we wanted it. I could make something of myself, a literal second self, a second living, breathing someone who would need me. I suppose it would be nice to be needed. If I went to the clinic, I would bleed. If it was just the pill, just a needle, just a quick anesthetic, I thought I might have done it. But I didn't want to bleed. Bleeding would have been so messy, too obvious a metaphor. I was an academic and I lived in a world of eternal incubation. Always one more semester, one more grant. To bleed would have commemorated finality, an active commitment for which I was not dispositionally prepared. So Clara was born. We put her in the car seat and the nurses had to correct the straps, which retrospectively seemed like the beginning. Although maybe it was the balloon that was really the beginning that the back of the nursery bookshelf cracked when Solly stepped on it while I was putting it together, or my writer's block or the stub cigarettes the workman dropped onto her, our balcony when patching the roof. You have to put her feet through there, the nurses told us as we readied Clara to leave the recovery room, and Ben's eyes got wide and worried. They fixed it, see, I said. Ben worried that my milk hadn't come in yet. He worried about traffic. He had to go to Houston in a week and his guilt was manifesting as anxiety. He adjusted the blanket that was draped over the car seat. We should have gotten those one of we should have gotten one of those specially made covers. Clara's eyes were open. They were a dark blue that would probably turn brown. She had wispy hair and a little birthmark just above her left eyebrow. She looked very small in the car seat. And because of this, the whole project of parenthood suddenly seemed manageable. Still, we stood in the lobby of the hospital, unwilling to embark. Ben frowned, then laughed, then wiped his eyes. He'd never done as well as me on little sleep. On our honeymoon, he had to spend the whole first full day of jet lag at the hotel with the blinds shut. Okay, yes, okay. Ben slapped his fist into his palm. Okay, we got this. Of course we do, I said. Now get in the car. I'll stop there. Thank you so much for reading that. <laughs> 
I like, there's so many parts in this book that I admire because like, okay, this is a long way of saying what I'm trying to say, but like, I remember when I read the golden compass series and all the horrible things that happened to the main character, I remember thinking like, oh, <laughs> like you're supposed to allow things to happen to your characters. Like you're supposed to allow like them to make bad decisions mm -hmm. and, and horrible things to happen. And for their deepest, darkest thoughts to be shown, like, oh, like as a writer, you're supposed to allow that to happen. And you like, this book feels like a continual, like step off of a cliff or a step <laughs> out of the top floor of the upstairs house. We'll say step on um, the balcony. Yeah. Um, and I, I think one of the moments that sticks out for me the most is obviously when, when she goes to have a drink and mm -hmm. leaves Clara with the babysitter that, Oh my God. And I'm just going to say this. Cause I assume everyone has read this book cause it's been out for months. And if you haven't, you should, cause it's, it's wild. Um, I remember thinking like, no, 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 that's not going to happen. No, 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 no. Oh my God. It happened. And as a reader, I was so like nervous and scared and horrified. And as a writer, I was like, God damn, that is brave. So I just want to hear you talk about those moments where you chose, I guess, overall, um, the book structure in general and the way that it unfolds, the way that Megan's mental illness unfolds through this relationship with Michael Strange and Margaret Wise Brown. So the, the emotional stuff and the Megan, the, the this overall structure of the book, I think I'll talk about sort of as a second part because that actually came later, like not, not the idea of the haunting, um, but the actual sort of like how to put the pieces together so that it could work as a novel. Um, but in terms of a sort of Megan's descent, I definitely had the turn of the screw in mind and sort of this idea of like the ratcheting up and ratcheting up. And I mean, it is, this is a horror, it's a horror novel, you know, it, the way that horror works, where you start out with something that feels kind of mundane and then gradually, you know, you're like in the, what is the metaphor that everybody's using? Like the, the frog in the boiling water, um, you know, you, you look up and all of a sudden here you are. And so it just made sense that it would progress this way, that she would get to a point, you know, where she was doing these things. Um, and it, so much of it worked for me in this particular context, the context of having it be like a new mother who is sort of slowly losing her grip on reality. Um, because I think that like all new moms, regardless of whether or not you have sort of a diagnosable postpartum mood disorder, you sort of you lose your grip on reality, especially with your first kid, because you just don't know what is normal and what's not. And you don't know what to expect of your body and of this, you know, little creature who <laughs> suddenly lives in your house and you're supposed to be awake at all hours to care for. Um, and so it fit, to me, it fit really nicely to have sort of these things happening to Megan that she can't understand. And because it is sort of layered on top of this new baby and really no social support, um, she looks at it and she thinks, okay, my hair is falling out. Like, is that normal? Oh, babysitter's a ghost. Is that normal? Like you just can't, you know, that, that line of like what to expect is so, um, it sort of, di it disappears, you know, of what, what isn't, isn't your reality, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so it worked, it worked well to have her have this descent. Um, and I also, it was really important to me too. I'm glad you say the whole thing about like, you know, thinking her darkest thoughts. Like I, I also really, I wanted that 
to be, I, it, it, it was important to me that like a, a new mom who, you know, isn't going to murder her kid, but also isn't necessarily thrilled with new parenthood. Like, I, mm-hmm. I feel like so many moms have these thoughts and dads have these thoughts and parents in general, like these moments of like, what, what am I, I'm allowed to swear, right? Mm-hmm. What the fuck did I just do? Um, and, um, you know, like, why, why did I do this? Why did I blow up my life like this? Um, and it felt like, okay, well, why, why shouldn't I explore those feelings and let this character really lean into that um, and be capable of both like loving her daughter and hating parenthood. Mm-hmm. Did you always have it in the first person when you were drafting Julia? Because as I was going back through, that was, I think the, the thing that really makes the book work is the fact that the, the postpartum psychosis is revealed to the reader in the first person that mm-hmm. you're getting everything else from the narrator. And there's just such a, a right there feeling with her as she's discovering kind of the boundaries of her psychosis and the, the rules or lack of rules as it's, as it's proceeding. I was wondering if you had arrived at that immediately or if that was something that you kind of arrived at mm-hmm. in editing. Yeah, it was. So Megan, Megan was always in the first person. And I actually, I knew that I wanted Margaret Wise Brown and Michael Strange um, to be part of the story. But part of the reason why we have these like moments in the book where you're in third person, Margaret or Michael's point right. of view is because that first person was so intense. And it just was like, it like grinds you down to mm-hmm. be, and it's so claustrophobic. And it's like, I need like a minute to step outside of Megan because it really sucks being in her head. Um, but yeah, I always knew, I knew that it was going to be first person. And I knew the question was again, like sort of turn of the screw, like, is she going crazy or is she seeing ghosts or is it a little bit of both? I really loved, I, um, I loved how at the end, the climax is when she decides which one she is. Mm-hmm. And then when, you know, and she steps out of the window um, yeah. and when she wakes up, she's just, her right like Mm -hmm. um and then sort of we see what unfolds after that you know she gets the help that she needs and then holy shit it turns out that it starts happening for her daughter um and I just thought like that was such a like clever but like also important thing important turn at the end of the book to show you know like that Mm -hmm. this these things can be genetic these things you know like it's and it also made it it also is sort of you know like it made you think at the end like well maybe she really is being haunted yeah yeah (laughs) oh yeah I never I mean I wanted I I wanted to and I tried to tread so carefully I I would never want to make it sort of as like a pat explanation of like oh well she's crazy and that's why she's seeing all the you know like I don't know that felt it felt so um like I, I wouldn't want to reduce the experience to that. And like, for me, it kind of is both. Like she's both being haunted and she's having a psychotic break. Um, and it had having, yeah, that that part of the end was a way to sort of acknowledge um, that it wasn't, things were not resolved. Things don't just go away because you like take a pill and go to therapy, sadly mm-hmm. enough. Um, and having, yeah, that this idea, I mean, so much of the book too is about sort of the le- the legacy of what, how we pass down the way that we, not just the way we parent, but the way that we sort of interact with the world, how our kids see us and copy us and how, you know, we take what we see our parents doing, um, both on the Michael and Margaret and on the sort of Megan and Clara and her mom's side. Um, and so that just seemed like a really 
a nice way to do it. Um, yeah, there was no way I was just going to like close the door and leave no, it there. And I was so, I was so <laughs> impressed by that. Like, I hate talking about it. Like, Oh, I'm a writer reading a book, but like, seriously, that's how I felt was like, Oh, Oh my God. And there, in that whole, like leading up to that moment where, you know, you know, that Claire is talking to Margaret, mm-hmm. um, is like, is, is a letting go on Megan's part. Um, mm-hmm. and it feels like, you know, like in the, like the whole book, she's fighting and fighting and fighting mm-hmm. for herself. Um, and, and like, not even for herself as she was before the baby, but just sort of like, just fighting for to keep her head above water and like yeah. be who she is and I as a mother obviously and I'm sure Alex as a father can relate to that with you know with all all of us have very small children um and then there's that like literally a denouement you know like there's that sort of mm-hmm. like descending road at the end where like she's getting the help she needs she's got the medicine like things are calming down she's you know given up on this she's given up on that you know um and I felt like that too is something I mean like that parents have to grapple with right like you have to you have to make it's you know like our parents were always talking about sacrifices and their parents were talking about sacrifices and their parents were talking about sacrifices and it's like you don't want to call it that but I don't know not and not to say that like oh it was necessary for for her family to work because I don't think you're saying that either I think you're, you're being very specific. Like these are the choices that Megan has made. Yeah. I, it, to me, there was never going to be, it's funny because I've seen, and this is like on, you know, people on Goodreads or reviewers on, you know, tag you on Instagram or whatever. And they're like, there's no character development in this book. It's like, well, what do you, what do you think character development is like a character starting one way and then becoming a whole different person? Like there just was no world in which Megan was going to have this happen and make the decision she made and like end up you know like I've fought through this and survived and I'm happy now like no she's always going to be unhappy she's married to the wrong person she you know had a kid without thinking it through and loves the kid but sort of also gave up her career for the baby you know it's not it's just there wasn't a situation in which she was going to have like triumphed over all the shit that was the whole book um And it felt, it would feel really inauthentic to me if she wasn't kind of depressed and sad at the end still. Well, and the the dissertation that is, you know, interstitial throughout Mm -hmm. the novel really sets you up for the epilogue in a way. I I didn't, when I first hit the epilogue, that was, it it really changed the book for me in such a wonderful way. I was like crushed by it, (laughs) especially the the time jumps within it. I was just, I loved it. Um, But really when I thought back, I was like, God, I really didn't see that as a reader in a good way. But then I was thinking more, it's like, well, really the disappointment throughout with a dissertation and Megan's advisor, kind of the interactions with her advisor Mm -hmm. were saying like, ah, this, no, this isn't going to work. Or, uh, you know, I don't really know what you're going for here. It, It really sets up what's to come in other aspects of her life. I feel like it, the, yeah, it, it was, it was really, it was really, the dissertation was, was kind of um, crushing in that way too, because as writers, you know, you're reading it and you're thinking, I have some sense of what it's, what it takes to write this dissertation, uh, you know, having written books. And it's, it's just the fact that that project does not, is not truly going to come to fruition. It's just, and yet is in this complete novel with such a, such an interesting move. Yeah. I mean, the, it's funny because the, so the dissertation, I always, 
it, it began um, as a way to be able to write about Margaret and Michael because I sort of at this, at, I was writing already a sort of like horror psychological thriller postpartum book mm. um, about new parenthood. And then I sort of encountered all of this history about Margaret Wise Brown. And I was like, how do I jam these things together that I'm interested in? Um, and the dissertation sort of began as a way to just provide the reader. At first it was gonna be like, you know, Megan knows about this cause she's writing a dissertation. And then I was like, oh no, it's so much easier to just be like, here's the dissertation. And I don't have to use, you know, like the exposition, the problem of exposition is solved. Um, but it became, as I kept going too, such a, a way to show where she was mentally and sort of where, how how the, the, the ghosts, um, however you wanna view them had come into her everyday life and how like her work was haunted by, you know, this past self and these women. Um, and it was, I mean, it was a lot of fun too, to write the dissertation, both in its sort of generic form and then as it got like weirder and haunted. Oh, I bet. I mean, it's so rich. I cannot believe how rich Margaret <laughs> Weiss Brown and Michael Strange, Strange's life were. Oh my I mean, God, I know, I know. Unbelievable. It's, it's wild. It, I felt, when I, when I first read Margaret's biography, I thought like, how is it possible that we haven't had like the prestige miniseries and yeah. nobody has written this, not necessarily this particular novel, but like, why isn't this story out there? And it's like, oh, I better write this book quickly so that somebody doesn't jump on it before me. I mean, now, she's like- are you writing that screenplay? There you go. <laughs> huh. Maybe somebody else will write that screenplay someday. Um, yeah. No, I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm not going to write a screenplay probably ever. <laughs> I know people I do it, it was, but it yeah, no, it's like, no, I think like everything I love about writing books, you lose when you write a screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do anything for money. So, you know, <laughs> well, Alex, you should write the screenplay. <laughs> yeah, sure. There you go. Get right on that, Alex. I mean, didn't, didn't, in the book, didn't it say that she was, she basically created board books yeah she did that, so, that blew my mind I was like yeah. how did I not know that that's I unbelievable know, I know I it's so wild to think about I mean you, you can sort of see it now like I read books to my kids where you're like oh this is I loved this book as a child like Curious George you're like oh mm -hmm. I loved this as a child like oh they put a bag over his head and like take him on you know there's all these <laughs> things where you're like this is just not appropriate so you see how the field has changed right like just by naturally looking at what you did as a kid but when you think too about like what our grandparents had access to like they just didn't have books for kids like they just didn't right. exist like that type of book for like you know 18 month old um and so yeah margaret wise brown and her mentor lucy sprague mitchell um who was the founder of the bank street school for children it was like a progressive early education laboratory basically you know they would study kids and then use what they saw in their teaching techniques um and they basically were like oh no kids need books that are not just like kids i guess really it is like you know kids are not just miniature adults like kids have their own developmental needs and so therefore you shouldn't just read them you know books that are slightly toned down versions of what adults would like you should provide them actually something that they can respond to. And so these, all, all the books that our kids read of like, you know, the fire truck goes beep, 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 or <laughs> like, here is the blue sky. Like that all didn't exist until they were like, oh, this is how these children think. And this is how they should read. Um, 
And Margaret Wise Brown took it a step further and was like, well, also babies put things in their mouths. So why don't we have books that they can put in their mouths and touch and play with and, you know, really interact with. Um, and so she, yeah, like all sorts of like the tactile books um, she started and Lucy Sprague Mitchell did those. I'm not sure if growing up, you read those, you know, I was a, a pioneer in the wagon train and this is my story. Like they invented those types of books for mm. older kids too. Um, it all, yeah, it, and this was just like 1930, 1940s, like not that long ago. Jeez. I, like my kids, uh, all three of them were obsessed with Goodnight Moon at some, at certain points in their lives. And I just always assumed that Margaret Wise Brown looked like the, right? the, the grandma yeah, bunny in the chair. She's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she she like a hot, you she's know, a babe. She's, yeah. And that book is so eerie. So fucking so weird. weird. And it's cozy. So weird. Like it's so I know. Cozy. I love it. But it's also like they're the like I remember I think Emma Straub wrote about it at at some point, maybe when her kids were much littler, about how like you're up as high as the moon. Like the moon is right there in the window. Mm-hmm. Like there's a good that good night nobody part. Oh yeah. That was yeah, know? that's I mean, that's like why this book exists. Because it's like, why the fuck is that bad? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And like someone, someone just maybe you posted about this, Julia. Someone yeah. just wrote about how no one says goodbye or good night telephone. It's from the Oh book, yeah, the I, I did see that. That was yeah. um oh, I cannot remember who wrote it. A mix, I think it was a mixed maybe. Mm-hmm. I think um, yeah, it was something like that. But no, it is, it doesn't follow. one of the reasons it's so great is like you expect a book like that like they introduce all of these objects and then you say good night to all the objects but then you like well you never you don't even meet the telephone or I guess you do um anyway regardless of what you do with the telephone then you suddenly are like we're outside of the room oh good night stars good night air good night you know and it doesn't it doesn't follow you know like you expect it to sort of have the structure that it then shoes and so it I don't know maybe that's why I love it also I love that it doesn't rhyme or that it rhymes moon with moon there's so many good things about the colors it. the colors are the colors so are great oh, yeah. I mean orange and I think orange and green it's like how often do you encounter that so I don't mm-hmm. know and it gets and it all gets darker as you go which is something mm-hmm. that I didn't really notice my Me first either. hundred million reads <laughs> <laughs> but it was so you I um the illustrator so Margaret had worked with Clement Hurd before on Runaway Bunny and like they were good friends and they did, you know, uh, his wife was really good friends with Margaret. And so she just wrote a letter to him of like the instructions of what she wanted it to look like. And it was like a little boy bunny in bed saying goodnight to things and the room gets darker and darker. Um, and, and then it, he's asleep at the end. That's yeah. like so oh, That's the unbelievable part. Yeah. yeah, I know, right? And the grandma's not there. Like the, the rocking chair's empty and the, and the bunny's asleep. It's like, yeah. That's how it's supposed to go. Oh, if only. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I still think about this book all the time as I'm oh. writing, like to give myself the courage. Um, Thank you. <laughs> but you, you mentioned something on Twitter at some point where you said five years ago when I started writing The Upstairs House, maybe, I don't know if you said exactly five years ago, but oh. there weren't books like this. And now people are all talking about how there's too many, too oh many. God. Yeah. This is the year. This is the year of the like postpartum new mom horror, I guess, or I new, guess. New, new parent surrealist books. Yeah. Um, Do you yeah, agree it, that there's too many? Oh, there's definitely not too many. That's what um, I was no, <laughs> definitely not. Also like I, it's funny though. So the need by Helen Phillips, I don't know if you've read that. Oh. 
Um, oh yes, yes I have. Yep. It. I feel like it could be like cousins with the upstairs house. It's funny because when you read the descriptions of them, they feel very similar. And so when I first saw that that book was coming out, and I had already. I don't know if I already sold this one or I was like trying to sell this and I was like, oh, well, there's my book, you know, but they're, they're <laughs> so different. So that book is about a woman who has, um, I think she has like a four-year-old and a one-year-old and there's like another version of herself basically, who's like trying to break into their house. I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah, like it's wonderful. Something um, horrible happens. Oh, it's yeah. It's like a very, it's, it's much more I, I hesitate to say sci-fi because I don't really know what I'm talking about, <laughs> but it feels much more. It, <laughs> it is it speculative. Much, yeah. It, it's speculative in a different way though yeah. than upstairs houses. Um, yeah. But anyway, so I saw like, oh, that book is coming out. Is there room for my book? Or like um, Rachel Yoder's Night Bitch, which is about yeah. a mom who like turns into a dog and mm-hmm. that one too. Again, like you read it and you're like, well, these aren't really similar, but people are like, oh, you know, this is the genre, you know, um, but it, it just makes me feel like, okay, well, these books are all, you know, they're about parenthood, but they're all so different. Mm -hmm. Like, do you say like, oh no, another coming of age story, another love story, you know, like, (laughs) come on, you people just have this idea. I, I I get it. If people don't want to read about like the adult diapers that you wear after you have a baby, like that's totally fine, but let's not pretend that those can't be just as literary as like, I don't know, you know, Philip Roth's erection. <laughs> I, it just feels like, it, it feels like there's a certain thing, like, you know, certain types of bodily experiences and emotional, gendered emotional experiences are allowed. And you can say like, this is literary, this is high quality literature. And then, you know, like, oh no, we have more than one book about a nursing mother. How could you, pa- like publishers, how could you? Like, hey, it's just such a weird, annoying it's so annoying. Thing. <laughs> it's, su- it's such a gendered response too, because you think about the amount of books that like if you use Philip Roth as an example, and it's so true. And there's so many authors who have written about so many, you know, old man, annoying, still wants to have sex with a young yeah. woman books. There's millions of these. And the fact that there's a, like this perceived cap on how many mm-hmm. postpartum book, you know, uh, you know, young mother yeah. postpartum books it's like it's insane it's it's baffling oh my God. and it's also funny too when people are like oh it you know, too too many so what like three <laughs> exactly right <laughs> right you just named three books right what? you named three or four books yeah it's crazy um no it does it's just like it also is a lesson I think to like the wider world which is probably not anyone who listens to your podcast and never knows how long like how long a game publishing a book is mm-hmm. but like people act as if it's like when it's like when COVID hit and the books that were coming out in like last July people were like well it's weird that they say it's 2021 but no one's wearing a mask like you know like okay but it yeah it, it's not if if there are a lot of books coming out this year that are about how difficult it is to be a new parent or how to, how hard it is to be specifically a mother of young children. Like maybe that's a sign that as a society, we're doing a terrible job helping mothers of young children. You know, like it's not, right. it's not like we all got together and we're like, let's publish books. You know, I think a lot of people have this experience and felt like for me, at least I had, um, a, I felt very lonely 
as a new mom. And obviously I didn't have, you know, the experience that Megan has. Um, although weirdly enough, she did live in a combination of the two condos I lived in while writing this book. Uh, but <laughs> I, uh, I didn't, I felt like I had not really seen anyone say it's okay to have this resentment and it's okay to like, not to be unhappy, you know, and it's, it's okay. Even like, it's okay to have postpartum depression and it's Mm -hmm. not, you know, you don't have to feel guilty about it and you don't have to feel guilty about those moments where you wish that you had your old life back. Um, and so that was sort of my, one, one of the reasons why sort of it was important to me to write this particular book. And I think in these other books, I feel like what I am also seeing and hearing are things like that, where like, oh, you don't have to love, you know, chopping up grapes and like cutting crusts <laughs> off of peanut butter okay. sandwiches. And like, you're not a bad person because you just want your kid to like stop touching you for 20 <laughs> seconds. Oh my God. You know? Only- um, so like, I... I don't know. I'm thrilled that they're out there. Yeah. There's always that like elderly woman around the corner going, don't wish it away. Enjoy it. You know, and it's like, and you know, like, and I can, some lady just told me, I was like walking along smiling with my children and she still stopped us (laughs) and was like, you need to make sure you enjoy these moments because blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I am literally smiling outdoors with my children but you also totally you totally understand where they're coming from because she's like you know her she was saying her kids Mm -hmm. are in their 30s and she would you know kill to have them that little again and it's like I I know know that I know that so inherently inside me I know it but also but you can know both things like I it's yeah I just like you can you can have both things like it can be really really great to have a new baby and it can also be terrible at the same time because Mm -hmm. like that's just how life is you Mm -hmm. know like that's maybe not how like America in 2021 is where we're all you know everything is just you know black and white polarized who even knows um Mm -hmm. but like in in actual life like as a human being experiencing the world like there are very few things that are pure joy or pure sort of disgust or pain or anything and like an experience as nuanced as like bringing a baby into the world and caring for it or raising a child like of, of course you're gonna have both my dad always, or my dad, he didn't always say this. He said this to me once and it stuck with me. He said, as a parent, you're lucky if you come out of it and you break even. And I didn't yeah. understand what he meant. I thought, cause my dad was a banker and he's like very into numbers <laughs> and stuff. So I was like, is he talking about like how much we cost? But I realized it's like, <laughs> it's like, there's going to be a lot of shit and like, mm-hmm. and a lot of fear and rage and, and like boredom. But yeah. you're also like, if you can, if you can break even with all the good stuff, then you're doing you're doing okay. Um, yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. I like it. And it's also sad. <laughs> yeah, it is, but it all, I mean, it's just, it, it's just true. It's true. <laughs> it's true. And it is, it really is something to strive for. It's like, if I can break even, if like mm-hmm. the good is the same amount as the bad, then, yeah. I mean, then that's good. Then that's good. I'm also, I'm just someone who I just don't want to be told, like you said, like someone telling me to enjoy it or be happy or to be like, if you tell me to enjoy it, that's, a sign that I'm not going to enjoy it. Like, yeah. I don't know what it is. If you tell me like, make sure you savor this, like, okay, well here, I'm going to be wishing I was doing something else, but <laughs> it's like those little moments where, you know, I don't know. I, it, 
it's those 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 unexpected things that are like nice about having a kid that and it also like whenever I read something like your book um and I and I see myself in it 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 broadens it for me it makes it Mm -hmm. more it makes it like better it makes it makes the experience deeper it makes it because you feel less alone and you feel like you know like and that's what like not pushing it down and denying that it exists like that's not Mm -hmm. it's when you see yourself in a book and you you know you recognize you know those dark that darkness and then it just sort of like you share the darkness a little and it makes it less dark I don't know it's it's important it's so much better than going to the doctor and having to fill out that goddamn (laughs) survey like oh do I laugh as much as I used to no I don't but I also don't want you to talk to me about it yes (laughs) yeah it's like do you feel as much hope as you did before and it's like do you know what year it is oh my god I know I had my so my daughter too was born she's actually turns one on Tuesday um so she's a pandemic baby and oh my gosh um, and so like all, all of it, I was like, I, okay, like, let's not even pretend right now. Yeah. That, like, yes. <laughs> and it's like, they don't really want to know the answer. Like I've cried in plenty of doctor's offices oh, when things have been bad and they're just kind of like, well, just keep holding on, you know, Check the box. Yeah. Yeah. Alex has a pandemic baby too. She turns one next month, July, right? July 6th. Oh, yeah. oh no. Or, yeah. June 29th. So there they're basically the same. Yeah. Um, <laughs> When Megan is watching HGTV in this book, <laughs> what, what, already funny. what do you picture? And also I just need like your personal ranking of HGTV shows mm. so we can go oh, back and forth on this. I mean, it's definitely Property Brothers. Oh, Prop Rose 1? Hey. No, no, that's not my ranking. That's what Megan okay. is watching. Okay, got it, got it. Um, cool, she, cool. yeah. With, uh, what's the one? I have not watched HGTV, honestly, like since my son was nursing constantly um but that is what we had on all the time um what's the one with chip and joanna see this is it shows me that i oh that is uh what is that one fixer upper fixer upper okay yeah fixer upper i think is my number one although i don't know what it's called um we had i don't know my my mother-in-law is a big hgtv not just watcher but like prop project completer actually so like she watches it with an eye for like i'm gonna do this in my house whereas i watch it with like get me through the (laughs) day you know (laughs) um and so she yeah she's the one who i think turned me on to it what's the other one oh i'm you know what i really actually my my number one which is not hgtv but is could be on is uh what's the housewives real estate housewives ladies oh what's uh... that one called Oh my god! Wait, what, selling one? Sunset, Selling Sunset. Oh, oh yeah, I haven't yeah, seen okay. that one. Oh my god, Lindsay, that's well, my number one. I again, I don't watch. So this is really, I don't really watch TV anymore because I'm trying to write a book, and also I have two kids that I care for full time. Right. Um, yep, so sure. the the thing that has gone is my, you know, I, I don't even want to say guilty pleasure, my genuine pleasure of television. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like so behind on New York Housewives, and I'm so behind on basically everything like the bachelor i'm probably just never going to watch again um <laughs> because it's you just have to dedicate your life to it um, why are they so long why is every episode why? So i know long. and also so boring also boring yeah lo- long and boring and yet for what 15 years that's what i did oh, <laughs> yeah, it has been on a long time yeah. um yeah no i am not right now like my so my, my schedule right now is insane. I write from um, 
whenever my daughter goes to sleep, my husband does. So my daughter is almost one and my son is four and I'll do sort of like the beginning of his bedtime routine. And then daddy handles the, like, I need water. I have to pee. I need another book. Lie on the floor with me. Um, (laughs) That kind of thing. Like, so Rick will do that. Um, And I just like make sure the baby is settled. And then I will write, we either eat with the kids at five o'clock or we just sort of eat our own separate dinners. And I have tried, I'm trying to, you know, just write until nine, nine 30. And then we'll maybe watch like a 20 minute episode of something. And then that's it. So there's no time for the good stuff. But yeah, no, but the the night, the night writing thing is definitely new in the past like few months. And I think that everything I've written is really awful, but I haven't reread any of it. I'm just like oh, trying wow. to power through a draft. And yes. so it could be that like this is a book that I can <laughs> work with on the back end, or I could just be like drinking wine in like some weird fever dream of words that aren't even forming sentences. That's and I exactly just don't know <laughs> how I described it. I know because I've been waking up at five to write yeah. and I write, I have like a word count goal that I meet. Um, and so like, if, if I meet it before 6am, when my kids start making moves, then I will like try to go back to sleep. Um, yeah. and if not, then I just like, you know, try to get it, get it done. But, um, I, I too have like not gone back and read it. And I, I really do worry, like in my head, I'm like, okay, yeah. I think it's like, I think it's like holding together, but I worry I'm going to go back and be like, what the hell? Oh, I mean, I'm absolutely sure that there are like, I like <laughs> so occasionally I'll like look back at it and I'm like, Ooh, missing like seven words. Like what this sentence doesn't make sense, but I think structurally maybe it works. I don't know. This is the advice that I've always given my students too because is that you can't really you're wasting your time if you're writing a novel and you are editing and editing and rewriting and rewriting like the first 20 pages which is Mm. what I did for my you know the first this first several books that I wrote and definitely the first one that I sold um you know it just is like well why why are you doing that you're gonna have to change it when you get to the end anyway and so I've told my students for years that this, they should just be doing what I'm currently doing. And I never did it myself until now. So we'll see what happens. Go, go, go. We'll see. I don't know. There's something about having like a full draft though, where you feel like, okay, I, at least it's not like I'm pretending to write a book. I don't know. I don't know. This is such a weird, I mean, this, what, what this whole podcast is about is like that, that weird feeling of, you know, have I, if I, if I don't currently have a book in the pipeline, am I a writer? You know, mm, I know mm-hmm. it really is. It's like, it's the hustle never fucking ends. You know, no, like if you're not no. hustling, what I worry about is like, okay, I, like generating the words is one thing and it requires this like certain uh-huh. part of your brain and, and your heart and soul, but going back through and revising, I don't think I can do that at 5am. <laughs> no. Oh my you God. Know? Yeah. That, so that's, this is my plan right now is to spend the summer drafting. And then my son is thank the Lord finally going to be in school. And hopefully my daughter will nap and like, yes. maybe we'll get a babysitter and I'll have like actual time. Yeah. There's no way that anything, you know, like occasionally maybe there's like that weird id, like in flow semi-brilliance that can come out of you when you're just like pushing it out but yeah yes. no, for for editing you need your brain <laughs> mm-hmm. yep yeah I need to not be like oh my god do I hear one of them getting out of their beds what are they doing are they going to pee are they going to go back oh to bed god. after well, they're peeing so this is why I started at night because like the one time that I know that both my kids are occupied with with sleep um and will not demand a snack <laughs> is you know is 
uh, right, right when they go to bed. Um, cause if it's later at night, somebody might wake up mm-hmm. and if it is during nap time has progressed, this is so awful. Again, this is why, you know, don't take my parenting advice. Um, <laughs> we had to my, my son, I was telling Lindsay before my son is a four forty-five in the morning kind of guy. He's just up and ready for the day. It doesn't really matter what. And so we, he napped until about three and a half. And we said, Oh, if we get rid of this nap, which is when I had been working for his entire life. And my daughter was finally sort of like lining up and it was going to be great. You know, if we get rid of that nap, maybe he'll sleep and we'll be able to sleep in the morning. And what has happened is now he has an hour of TV and snacks where he sits on the (laughs) iPad saying another snack, another snack, mommy, I need a snack, mommy, mommy. Um, Can't relate at all. I can't get anything done that either. (laughs) So that's like emails and like lesson planning and sort of, you know, work that isn't writing work time. But like, I, no, I don't know how people write people who are like, Oh, just put cartoons on and you can write while they watch TV, sit next to them. Like, no, no. If my kids, if I'm within their eyesight, they, they, I gotta be up. If I sit down, that's like a no for them. No. And if you're not paying attention to what they're watching on TV or like, mommy, why aren't you watching me? I'm coloring my crayons. Watch this. Watch this. Yes. Oh God. The watch this. Yes, I must I, have all your attention all the time. And it's like, I am literally right next to you. I like, I have published four books in my life. I've written many more than that. I have, you know, a beautiful family and home, great marriage. But my biggest accomplishment in life was the summer that Judith was born. And I had three children at home with me all summer long. I put them down for naps at the same time every day. Wow. <laughs> and I feel like no one can ever take that slept. from me. They and they slept. all slept. They all slept. I don't even try it because it makes me want to die. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, we do a lot of the car. So lately, so this is again, like a perk of the fact that my husband has been working from home for over a year now, um, is that if, if the baby falls asleep in the car, what I have done the past few times is he takes the older one inside and he can be the snack giver. Um, and he can bring me my laptop and I just sit in the car with the sleeping mm-hmm. baby and I've tried mm-hmm. to work and that actually mm-hmm. has been it's actually almost better because I don't have access to the internet yep mm. so yeah I mean lo- long term none of these are solutions <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. Honestly, I... honestly if somebody else can be the snack giver like that is my least favorite part of the day. God, <laughs> it's like right when you get into whatever it is you're trying to do and all of a sudden like escape Oh, get, get your own snacks, child. Oh, or actually, the real the real solution is like eat your lunch. Yes, <laughs> please eat your lunch. Oh my eat god, the meals. eat your lunch. Just you won't lunch. be so hungry. Eat what I've made lunch. you. I know it's like good. It's stuff you like. Eat it. <laughs> I know. And the worst is when you're like, okay, what do you want for dinner? I'm going to make you this, this, or this, and they tell you, and then you give it to them, and they're like, Neh. no, no, you no. Know? no. <laughs> it's like I'm going to kill all of you. It, yeah, no, I am. Oh my god. Yeah, we had that tonight. Mommy, I don't like this. Please don't make it again. Like, okay, well, you asked for it. You picked it out. <laughs> My middle child wants box mac and cheese for every meal. Every meal. And so it's like when I when I have to bring him his meal that isn't the mac and cheese, I'm always like, okay, is this fine? <laughs> well, Julia, do you want to tell us anything about what the book is about that you're writing? Oh, yeah, I can talk a little about it, I think. So it is, again, this is just like proving myself to be an absolute crazy person. because <laughs> It's about, um, so Vivaldi, the composer. Okay, I'm in. Is, again, weird place to start. Uh, so he, uh, he taught music and composed a lot of his 
pieces, not the Four Seasons, which is what everyone knows, but like a lot of his other stuff. Um, he taught at this basically like an orphanage for young girls in huh. Venice. Um, and so I, the book began as like maybe writing about Vivaldi, but now what it is actually about is just um, two girls who are a violinist and a singer um, in Venice in 1720 who how do I even describe it I've been so I've been saying I pitched it to my agent as like it's like the Olivia Rodrigo sour album (laughs) in Vivaldi's Venice with like a sea monster that's a a really good pitch (laughs) it's about it's about like how teenage girls are awful to each other, but still kind of love each other. Um, and there's also sort of like a Faustian sort of bargain. Um, and it's also just me like having fun writing about music and Venice is really cool. But the reason I'm crazy is I don't play violin. Um, I've never been to Venice. <laughs> like, why oh do my I- <laughs> Obviously I don't live in the 18th century. Um, so like, do you want more work? Like ma- just making work for myself right and left. Um, but I- I'm into it. It's been a lot of fun. And hopefully my agent will have a better way to pitch it. <laughs> I don't know. Your way was pretty good. That, I mean, that I'm, I want to read that book. Yeah. Oh, and I think the oh. good thing about that is like, when you're sick of writing or you don't have anything to say, you can be like, well, I'm writing because I'm researching Venice right now. Like I'm going to open oh, up some is. Google uh, yeah. tabs. I also have, we've done a lot of like YouTube. Oh, the other thing too. So like when snack, when snack nap time, um, you know, my kid, my kid who like, I wish I had a kid you could put in front of the TV and he would just watch TV, but instead he needs snacks and then like me to be with him. So it's like, okay, we're going to sit and do this like YouTube walking tour of Venice. And I'm going to tell you that you're in Venice. And he's like, oh, we're going to this restaurant right now. Oh, look, mommy, we're going on the boat. And it's like, okay, this is like educational for both of us. You know? There you so, go. See, you can participate with me. Um, that is such a classic. I'm a writer, but moment just like so, I'm being a mother, but I'm also doing come, come do this with me. Oh, I also have bought him like a book called like welcome to the orchestra and like all, all these, all these things. My kid has like the weirdest, this is, I think this is just the case probably for all writers, kids though, where they just, it's a combination. Like some people are like, yeah, I'm inspired by my kid is interested in this thing. And so my book is about this thing. And like, that actually is true. Cause there's trash trucks in the upstairs house. Um, Oh yeah, <laughs> but but also like I'm like these are my weird interests, kids. You're gonna be into it with me. Oh totally. Oh, but no, the gar- the garbage truck is like totally because my kid was obsessed with garbage trucks, and I was like, what can such happen in thing. this scene? Better that bring a trash truck a thing. in. God, <laughs> yeah. The garbage truck is like, yeah, it's like the highlight of the week sometimes. Yeah, we follow it from corner to corner. <laughs> what a life. Okay, well, it is nearing your writing time, Julia. So we're gonna let you go. All right. Well, this has been so fun. Yeah, thank you. This is awesome. I was so looking forward to talking to you. And I've been, this is like the highlight of my weekend. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Everybody read The Upstairs House. It is wild and terrifying (laughs) and just so great. Okay. Okay, Lindsay Hunter. Yeah. Uh, I got nothing. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing. I'll see I... you in two days. Okay. Wait, what? Oh, yeah, you're coming over. Three days? <laughs> two days? Three days? <laughs> no, you're right. It's Tuesday, right? Tuesday I morning? Know. I don't know. You told me a day. I put it on my phone. And then yeah, yeah, you'll be there. You'll be there. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, cool. Go watch Skyfall. Oh, I will. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye. 
I'm a Writer Butt is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Yeah, yeah.